Um, this is the first time, I think this might be the first time I've ever done a YouTube live video that hasn't been uh, unlisted private. Uh, so uh, hopefully some of you will be watching. Um, I'm hoping because it's not private, uh, there might be uh, a few more of you who are just subscribed to YouTube who are able to see this. Um, although I'm guessing you need to click on notifications in order to see this stuff. I don't know how it all works. It's over my head. Uh, but if this works and um, generates a bit of conversation, uh, maybe I'll start doing more live videos uh, on YouTube. I think that'd be kind of fun. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, we've definitely got half a dozen people watching so far. There's Tim saying hi. This may be <laughs> the perfect anecdote for the quarantine. I wouldn't say that yet. This could be the worst. This could be a good sleeping pill. If you're anxious and you can't sleep, maybe an hour long chat about Anselm is exactly what you need to uh, get a good night's rest. So we'll see how that goes. Um, if you're watching live, please do chat away in the chat box. And if you have questions, put the questions in there and I will, I will definitely see them because there's literally one uh, comment so far in the chat box. I don't think it's going to be overrun. Uh, I was watching um, the uh, Trump's um, uh, speech yesterday about national emergency and the chat box goes crazy and there's all sorts of things in the chat box. Uh, I don't think that's going to be my problem. So what did I want to do in this, uh, in this YouTube live video? I mean basically um, in order to address that, I've got to tell you a little bit about Atheism for Lent. Um, and by the way, I'm just going to relax, take my time, uh, talk about a few different things and we'll get to Anselm soon enough. But as many of you know, uh, I'm currently running uh, this course called Atheism for Lent that I've been running now on and off for like 25 years. And it's a course that I run over Lent, but really it could be run at any time. Uh, it gives people 40 reflections, sometimes it's music, art, something to read, something to watch, an interview, it's a whole range of different material and it's designed to explore the interaction between uh, theism and atheism and to explore the theological dimension of atheism and the atheistic dimension of theology. And at first that can sound strange to people because people think of atheism and theism as opposites, like black and white or positive and negative. And in a way that's true, but that's why they're interconnected because just like there are positive and negative charges or black and white makes sense in relation to each other, um, or in an argument, a negation as in a critique, an antithesis to the thesis is what generates the discussion. So too atheism and theism have had this complex interchange. And uh, not only have they had this complex interchange, but they have also, uh, they interweave in very, very interesting ways. And part of atheism for Lent, it's more of a practice. So it's designed to get you to think, to reflect, to destabilize you, whatever you believe or don't believe, but in a positive way to get you to think about things differently and even to, um, to disturb you enough in your atheism or your theism or your agnosticism or agnosticism um, to kind of like open up new horizons, to broaden your, um, your perspective. And uh, I think that's important. I think that's one of the rules of philosophy is to try to broaden our, uh, our horizons and our perspectives. And that's kind of a positive thing. So, um, 
part of atheism for Lent is about do experiencing that type of destabilizing that type of personal um, uh, change but there's also an intellectual dimension to it like very much so in fact many of the people that we encounter in the course are philosophers um, and academics of various kinds uh, we're looking at people like Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Feuerbach we look at Altizer, we look at Shizek, we, you know, we look at Anthony Flew and we go way back to uh, 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 Protagoras and uh, Seneca and all of these interesting people so there's a whole range of thinkers in it and then every week I give a seminar so that's what Atheism for Lent's doing and uh, last week I gave an introductory seminar to the mystics because every week there's a different block. The, the first week is a few days of just orienting ourselves. Then the first proper week is a real deep dive into the origins of atheistic critique. And that's where we looked at some of the ancient Greeks, people like Protagoras and Epicurus. But we also looked at people like Anthony Flew. We looked at that also the entertainer Darren Brown. So that first week was a, a real deep dive into the kind of the standard critiques that we know about um, uh, critiques about God and the critiques of religion. Then the second week, the second main week, which is the week we've just done, is an introduction to this idea of where atheism actually becomes part of theism, where atheism is injected into the theological and the theistic enterprise. Now, it's only the beginning, and what I was doing by looking at, we looked at people like Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, we also read Simone Weil, who's a contemporary, like she lived in the 20th century. Um, and we looked at, uh, who else? So Meister Eckhart, uh, Marguerite Perrette, so some of, the, some of the very famous mystics. Um, and we were doing that to try to understand how mysticism is really where we see atheism enter into. Uh, this kind of theological project and I said it kind of advances and changes and we're going to be looking at, in, at that in future weeks but at the end of this week I wanted people to understand what this term means the the atheistic dimension of theism so that was my my aim for the end of this week is people would kind of get a feel for that term the atheistic dimension within theism the next two weeks will be where we understand what the opposite phrase means which is the theistic dimension of atheism. And for that, we're going to be looking, as I said, at Feuerbach, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche. We're also going to look at people like Paul Tillich, uh, Bonhoeffer, um, uh, Altizer, uh, to kind of understand that. So that's not what I'm doing today. That's for the future weeks. And if you want to tune into that, jump on to Atheism for Lent. <laughs> but um, this week was all about the mystics. And at the end of the seminar, I just felt that I hadn't said exactly what I wanted to say. Or I woke up this morning at least and thought, oh, you know, there's a few other things that I wanted to say about Anselm, didn't get to say. So I thought, oh, well, let's just try YouTube Live. So what I want to do now is I want to kind of look at Anselm um, as one of the central figures for understanding mysticism, kind of understanding the position of the mystics. Uh, the, the really the first important mystic is uh, Pseudo-Dionysius. But Anselm has a very cogent argument that can help us understand what is the insight of the mystics, what is central to their thought, and why is this connected to atheism. Now, uh, you know, I can't cover everything we've done on the previous seminars, but 
you know, you can think of theism as a thesis, as a position, and atheism as a rejection of the theism, as an antithesis, right? So there's a, a positive and negative. And that's important as we look at what's called the cataphatic tradition, which is the tradition of the negative within theology. And say Anselm gives us a way to do that. But it's kind of weird because Anselm is very famous for giving the argument for the existence of God that's called the ontological argument. Now, there's debate over whether it should be called the ontological argument. Um, spoiler alert, it shouldn't be. And that will maybe become clear as I talk. But if you want to ask me why, ask me why so at the end I can remember to tell you. Um, the ontological argument's more appropriate to Rene, uh, or sorry, to Descartes. Yeah. Uh, Descartes has an ontological argument. Anselm, not so much. But Anselm is famous for trying to give the definitive argument for the existence of God. And uh, so it's weird that we look at Anselm to understand how atheism uh, at an early stage was, uh, took an important part within the theistic and the theological tradition. But we will look at why. So basically, just looking at, see, there's a couple of chats there, good. I'm very intrigued by this painting in the background. Oh yeah, that's my friend Johnny McEwen. Uh, from Ireland. He's one of the best uh, artists in Ireland, I think. He, he, he does kind of semi-abstract landscape art. Um, he's also a very talented musician and very creative person. He was actually one of the key people behind ICON, which is the community that I facilitated for many years. Um, and uh, we play poker together and I've got a few paintings that are the result of poker games, but that one was. Um, but yeah, he's a great artist. Go and buy some of his stuff. If you buy some of his stuff, Tell them I sent you, and he might cut me in, at least for a pint, whenever I get back to Belfast. <laughs> um, and some of you will have met Johnny McEwen. If you've come to my wake events or my spark events, he's often there doing stuff. Um, so thank you. Um, you wanted to ask why? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Thank you, Kate. Kate's just put in the question, why, is it, why should it not be called the ontological argument? Thank you. I will get back to that. Um, Okay, so here's, here's, here's Anselm's argument. You may have heard it before. It's very interesting. It's quite difficult to get your head around the first time you hear it, um, partly because it's so simple and sophisticated at the same time. So here's a version of it, right? If uh, I was to say to you, uh, I know a bachelor who's married, right? And then you were to say to me, I don't believe you, right? You do not know a bachelor who's married. I could respond by saying, well, hold on a second, have you met every bachelor in the world, right? And if you haven't, then how can you know that there, is, that there isn't a bachelor out there who's married, right? And how do you know that I haven't met him? And of course, you can easily respond by saying, I don't need to go out and meet every bachelor in the world. I don't need to do a sociological um, kind of a questionnaire to discover if every bachelor is uh, unmarried. In fact, if I did do that, I would discover that there are some bachelors who are married. This is one of the problems with questionnaires and with this kind of argument is if you go out and you interview a thousand people and you ask them, do you know any bachelors who are married? Some people will say yes, because they just don't understand what the word bachelor means. So you could come back with a statistic that says, well, it looks like there are very few, but there must be some bachelors who are married. But you, you can say to me, no, 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 I don't need to do that. I don't have to go out into the world, what's called a, posteri a posteriori uh, um, uh, exploration, which is uh, where you go into the world and experience. I don't need to do that. 
because the very definition of bachelor is unmarried man, right? That's what bachelor means. So if you say to me, I know a bachelor who's married, that is like saying, or this, that is saying, I know someone who is unmarried, who is married. And uh, that's just meaningless. It's a meaningless statement. You're not saying, I know someone who's unmarried, who was married, or who will be married in the future. Uh, you're, you're making a claim that this unmarried person is married. And go like, so I know your argument's wrong. And then um, I turn around to you and go, okay, okay, okay. But a different one then. Um, I once saw a triangle that had four sides. It's exactly the same thing. If I say to you that and you say, no, you haven't, you've never seen a triangle with four sides. And then of course I respond and I go, how do you know? Have you seen every triangle in the world? You know, you obviously haven't, you can't lie to me. Your response to that is, I don't need to. Because within the very definition of triangle, it's a shape with three sides. So you're saying to me, I saw a shape with three sides that had four sides. Okay. So that's pretty simple. But this is where Anselm does something really clever, really ingenious. It's kind of fun. It's a logical puzzle. So he then comes along and he says, all right, um, I'm claiming that God doesn't exist. Right? Uh, now, first of all, we have to work out what is the definition of God? Just like we had to work out what's the definition of a bachelor, unmarried man? What's the definition of a triangle, a three-sided shape? What's the definition of God? And Anselm says, definition of God is that than which none greater can be conceived, right? Very good definition of God, right? Very simple, uh, very precise, uh, very solid, right? When you say the word God, whether or not you believe God exists, you are referring to the idea of that than which none greater can be conceived. If you can conceive of something greater, then you're not talking about God. Okay, right, so that's the definition. That's, we're, we're off to a good start. So I am saying a being or that which, uh, right, that, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say being, that's why I'm hesitating, by the way. So if I say a being uh, greater, that none greater can be conceived, that's not quite right. That which, can, which no greater can be conceived, right, I'm saying that does not exist, okay? That than which none greater can be conceived does not exist. So you can say to me, well, okay, well, what, what is the term that than which none greater can be conceived? What does it mean? Let's, let's parse it out. Well, we're talking about a being that's strong, but it can't just be strong or very strong. It has to be the strongest being that's possible, that, that than which none, no stronger exists, right? Uh, because it has to have what's called maximal greatness. This, this God, if God exists, or whether, you know, this concept is about maximal greatness. So this being has to be omnipotent, right? Can't just be strong, has to be omnipotent. Fair enough. Then you go like, this being can't just be some place or most places. This must be in every place. It must be omniscient or omnipresent, sorry, omnipresent. Go like, yeah, okay. And this being can't just know some things. This being must know everything that's possible to know. Uh, omniscience, right? Uh, you go, okay, right, these are all great, maximally great properties, so we list them down, right? That's what that means. And then Anselm, you know, pulls out the ace card, and now he's got you trapped. Because now Anselm says, okay, um, 
what about existence, right? If God exists, God would have to exist in the best possible way, right? We exist contingently, right? Everything we know exists contingently. Everything I can see around me, like the painting, was a thought in Johnny's mind. It came into being because of the canvas and the paint and the idea behind it. It's in existence and it will pass out of existence. I am contingent, I came into existence, I will pass out of existence, right? And I could well not have existed. It's very easy for me to imagine that the circumstances could have been different and I would not be here or this painting wouldn't be here or you wouldn't be here, right? Everything that we experience in life exists contingently. Now, Anselm says that's better than not existing, right? So not existing, uh, he basically says something that exists just in the mind but not in reality, that's the lowest level. So Sherlock Holmes exists in the mind but not in reality. That's the lowest level of existence. Second level of existence is something that exists in the mind and in reality. So with the painting, it obviously existed just in Johnny's mind for a while, and then he painted it and existed in reality and in his mind. Right. Um, but then also Anselm says, it's possible for something to exist in reality that cannot be contained by the mind. So the first level is something that exists in the mind, but not in reality. Second level is something that exists in reality and in the mind. And the third, that which exists in reality, but cannot be grasped by the mind. That would be the greatest level of existence. So what he's done now is he said, there's two types of existence that God would have. One is necessary existence. So necessary existence is God has to exist. God cannot not exist. God is the first cause, the unmoved mover, right? Um, that just like two plus two equals four is a type of uh, you know uh, necessary existence, right? That uh, doesn't get old, doesn't you know? It's just it's there. Um, God would have necessary existence, unlike us, who have contingent existence, and God would have hyper existence, as in existence in reality that cannot be contained by the mind, because those are maximally great properties. So there we go, we've got now a list of what we mean by God. We haven't got to the argument yet of whether God exists or not. We've just got to the point where we both understand what we're talking about. Whenever we're arguing about the existence of God, we mean that than which none greater can be conceived, which means that which has maximally great properties. And those properties are things like omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, uh, necessary existence, and hyper-existence. Okay, now you'll maybe see where he's going with this. So he says, right, okay, so if you tell me that God doesn't exist, what you are saying is that God, who necessarily exists, doesn't exist, right? So you're saying a thing that necessarily is, is not. A thing that necessarily exists isn't. And of course, the person's going to go, no, no, hold on a second. You know, I'm not talking about the existence of God. I'm just saying, like, this is the definition of God. If, if God exists, God would have necessary existence. God would be hyper-existent. Uh, God would be all-powerful and missing. And I'm not talking about God actually existing. But of course, Anselm's kind of got you in a bit of a bind here. Because he's saying, but, but the very definition of God that, you're, that you've accepted, which is God necessarily exists, right? That's what you mean. Whenever you say the word God, you're talking about a being that has to exist, that cannot not exist. Yeah. And then you're saying that that being doesn't exist. Well, how? Because it cannot not exist. 
And then you're like, okay, something weird's gone on. <laughs> but it's very hard to find what, right? So oceans of ink have been spilt on this discussion of going like, what? where's the trick? What's gone wrong here? Can, you can't just define something into existence, right? Um, now, interestingly, there are some uh, contemporary philosophers, first-rate philosophers, who have versions of this argument that they think... Um, uh, are valid. Um, the most famous is probably Kripke. I think Kripke uh, has a form of what's called a modal argument for the existence of God. And then Ansel, or, uh, uh, Plantinga, Alvin Plantinga um, has a version of a modal argument as well, possible world theories. Don't need to get into it. But there are people who um, think that there's some validity to this type of argumentation or it can be restructured in a valid way. But the main argument against it and by the way, if you want, to, if you want, you should stop now this and walk around and think about this. Maybe you can't go for a walk outside because of the coronavirus, right? But you go walk around the, your apartment and um, and uh, just kind of get your head into this question and or this argument and try and feel it and feel how weird it is and feel how frustrated. Uh, it should it should make you frustrated because it feels like there's a fast. It's like watching a magician. You don't know where the sleight of hand is, but you know there's some sleight of hand somewhere, right? Um, and then you can come back to the video and then we'll carry on because I'm about to give you the spoiler uh, of maybe why it's not valid, at least in Anselm's form. Uh, Immanuel Kant, he basically, in his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, uh, he has in like, you know, the second half of the book, he looks at the arguments for the existence of God and he boils them all down to this one. And he says, they, all the other arguments for the existence of God kind of presuppose this so-called ontological argument. And, uh, and he says, okay, well, does it work? And Kant's uh, argument is no. And the problem is that, it, maybe it's a, it's a bit of an issue with language. It's, we're treating existence as a property that some, something has. And Kant says, Existence isn't a property. It's not a property of something else. You don't say, oh, there's a sheep and it's got four legs and it's got fur, uh, uh, wool and uh, it eats grass and it exists, right? Whenever I say the and it exists, I haven't really added anything extra to it. Uh, you just assume when I'm talking about a sheep that I'm talking about it existing or even existing in my mind if I'm talking about, you know, a sheep in some book, right? Um, and Kant says basically existence isn't a property, it's almost like what you hang properties on. It's the clothesline upon which you pin various properties. And so Kant says basically the argument is more like this. It's like I am saying to you, if God exists, God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, necessarily exists and has hyper-existence, right? If God exists, all of those are right. All of those properties are correct. But you still haven't worked out whether God exists or not. So you either believe God exists and then you assume all of this is true or you don't and you do, you, it, you, you're not forced to believe, right? So that's kind of Kant's argument. Now, if you go along with that, the first thing you might do is think, okay, so there's nothing interesting here. Nothing to see in Anselm's Proslogion. This is an old argument. It's fun. It's interesting to get the mind going, but ultimately it's not valid. However, that's not really necessarily the case, right? Because Anselm wasn't even that interested in 
proving the existence of God. That wasn't what he was trying to do. Uh, he talks about faith seeking understanding. He, he starts off already believing. He says, I'm already caught up in this and I just want to understand what I'm caught up in. So he feels he's already caught up in something that he calls God. And so all he's trying to do in the proslogion is it's like a devotional journal, but done by someone incredibly intelligent. So a devotional journal in which he's trying to understand what he is immersed in and what he already believes or already has faith in. And so what value is in this contemplative piece of work called the proslogion? What's going on? You could say this. You could say that if someone believes in God, then they must believe that God both exists necessarily and has a type of hyper-existence, that an existence that cannot be reduced to an edos or an idol or an ideology. Idolatry and ideology come from the same root of edos, to have the essence of. So if you believe God exists, you are committed uh, logically to believe that um, conceptual grasp or experiential grasp of this greater than conception being is impossible. Uh, now, there's all of these interesting ways of, of talking about how you can experience the negative, right? We, we may get into that, we may not. But this is the key point, because this is what the early mystics and pseudo-Dionysius is really bringing to the fore. He's saying that that necessarily, if you uh, believe in God, then by definition, you have to negate every affirmation you say about God. Because those affirmations are, are mental grasps, attempts at grasping the edos, and therefore they're false, they're idolatrous, right? And this is where atheism first kind of is, is seen as what uh, something like Merrill Westphal would call, um, what's he called? But it's a, a purification of the instrumental notion of religion. But Simone Weil talks about this. And if you're doing atheism for Lent, today is the day, I think, that you do Simone Weil. Um, you'll see Simone Weil talks about the purification process of atheism. Well, this can help us understand what that means, is that Pseudo-Dionysius and Anselm, they're talking about the notion that every nomination to names to nominate, every nomination has to be uh, uh, coupled with a denomination, just like positive and negative charges. And a denomination is a denaming. And it's interesting, churches are called denominations, right? Denominations, denamings. Uh, places where you're protected from idolatry, of thinking you grasp the essence of something, whether it's political essence, ideology, whether it's religious essence, idolatry. Um, which means that if you think of theism as the, as the thesis and atheism as the antithesis, now atheism is an antithesis which happens within the, the, the theistic position. And that leads to what some people call theopoetics. It's not a term that I'm as keen on, but it's, it's a good term for the, to understand Anselm, is that theology is a type of, think of it like a poetics in the sense of poetry can express something without nailing it down. It can help you feel something, expand your horizons without, uh, without kind of defining something in a very specific way. And so theology is a type of, for someone like Jean-Luc Marion, it's a type of praise. It's a type of 
response in which you're trying to say beautiful things and uh, keep things open and keep yourself from closing things down. Uh, Marion, who's a contemporary uh, philosopher, he talks about the difference between idol and icon. An idol is where you have the thing that you can grasp, but just like the second level of being for Anselm, right? Second level of being is something that exists in the mind and in reality. So um, idolatry is when you think you can conceptualize the, that than which is greater than can be conceived. You can conceive it. That, by the way, is why, if you've noticed, why does Anselm use this very tongue twister definition, which even I'm tripping over, right? Which is, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Why does he not say God is the greatest conceivable being? Which is kind of what Descartes says, right? Um, and that's how often Anselm is thought of. People who haven't read Anselm often think, oh yeah, God is the greatest conceivable being. But Anselm's like, no, that's fundamentally what he's writing off. He's saying, no, if I can conceive of something, then I can conceive of something greater than that, which is something greater than conception, right? So anything I can conceive is not the greatest thing because I can conceive of something that is beyond conception. I can't conceive what it is, but I can conceive the concept. Just like infinity, I can conceive infinity. I can't grasp infinity because infinity is just an ongoing thing. There's no end to infinity, but I can grasp it intellectually through the word infinity. So in a similar way, Anselm very much avoids the idea that we have a conceptual grasp of something other. Rather, he wants to say that than which none greater can be conceived, which means uh, a being which is greater than conception, right? So idolatry is at the level of the second, and I, the iconic dimension is at the level of the third. And the iconic dimension, if you think of an icon, an icon is a painting instead of a religious figure, but the idea is that the painting draws you into what is beyond it. Yeah, just like uh, when you love someone, as Emmanuel Levinas said, if you love someone, you don't see the color of their eyes, right? You can be looking at someone and, and in this conversation with them and very deeply discussing them, and you're looking at their eyes for an hour, but you turn away and someone asks you what the color of their eyes are, and you have no idea. Uh, it's not because you're not concentrating, because you're in this very deep conversation, you are concentrating, but you're kind of entering into an iconic experience in which you're kind of seeing beyond what's visible, but you're seeing what's visible, you're staring right at it, but that's opening up to something other than being, other than what's in front of you. So that's what an iconic, an iconic painting is supposed to do, and an iconic space or an iconic discourse is a discourse that doesn't define something so much as draws you into something, invites you into something. And that's what I wanted to cover in the Anselm seminar that I think I missed. I, I did talk about all of that and it was all implicitly there, but I wanted to be explicit about what you can get out of Anselm once you um, reject the, the argument as, a, as an argument, like what analytic philosophers do often, you know, they dissect it as an argument for the existence of God, when for Anselm it never was. But it kind of was and wasn't, it was mostly devotional. It was mostly him just trying to understand his own position. But once you get rid of that, you're not left with nothing. You're left with going, oh, this is still a protection for anyone who says they believe in God. Then you can, you know, if you want and if they're open to it, say they're young, they're just kind of starting to believe and they think they've got it all kneeled down, right? Um, 
you can very gradually show them that doubt, complexity and ambiguity is not an attack on their position. It's actually a purification that protects them against idolatry. Right? So that's the movement. That's what I used to do. That's what I did in my first book. That was the point of my first book, really, was to try to uh, in, introduce to, into the evangelical community the notion that doubt, complexity and ambiguity uh, were not things that attacked the, the, the system of belief, but actually were purification uh, tools, something that were a vital aspect of it. Um, you've probably all heard me use, uh, refer to an old Jewish parable, one of my favourites, about this young kid who is in his, he's in his late 20s and he comes to an old rabbi and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, I want to know the wisdom of God. And the rabbi says to him, go away, you're too young, right? come back in five years. And the young kid's arrogance says, no, 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 I'm ready. I've been studying. I've studied philosophy. I know modal logic. I know symbolic logic. I've studied Aristotle, the scholastics. I'm ready. I want to learn from you. I want to learn about the nature of God. And um, the rabbi thinks for a second and then says, okay, I'll ask you a question to test you to see if you're ready. And uh, the rabbi says, two guys come down a chimney. One has soot on his face and the other doesn't. Who washes their face? And the young guy thinks, oh, well, the person with soot in his face. And the rabbi says, no, no, go away, go away. Of course not. It's the one without the soot on their face. Why? Well, the one with the soot in their face, they don't see it. They see the other person. The other person doesn't have soot on their face, right? But the other person, they look at their friend and they see their friends covered in soot. So, of course, they're going to assume I must be covered in soot. So it's the one who doesn't have the soot on his face who washes his face. And the young guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Well, listen, test me again. And the rabbi, as many of you know, says, okay, a different question. Two guys come down a chimney, one has soot in their face, one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the, the guy says, well, was it my first answer for different reasons? Or, or it, was the, no, it, was the, it was the guy who doesn't have soot in his face. And the rabbi says, no, no. He says, the guy with the soot in his face, stop trying to be clever. He tastes it in his mouth. He feels it in his eyes, right? He washes his face. And then he says, one more question. Two guys come down a chimney, one has soot in their face, one doesn't, who washes their face? And the young guy goes, I think it was my first answer, but I gave her the wrong reasons. And the rabbi goes, no, they both wash their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you got soot in your face? Go away, come back in five years. Right, so what is this parable about? Well, in a way, the young person is the one who wants to have the answer to kneel things down. And that's what they want, they want the answer. And the rabbi is saying, you are entering into a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years and will be going on for thousands of years after we're dead. And it's not about having the right answer. It's about being passionately involved in that ongoing conversation. And this is what atheism for Lent is actually. It's about being part of this ongoing dialectic conversation. And if you're not ready for that, then you're not going to want to get into it. Go away, come back in five years, right? Come back when you're ready. And it's very much the opposite of what we think about often when we think about them. Um, uh, in Christianity, sometimes there's the idea of you want to know the God's eye view is the answer that's important, right? Whereas in this, it's kind of like, no, the, the answer is the question and the struggle and the movement itself. And that notion is what you find here with an Anselm. It's like going like, no, you can't pin it down. You can't know it. All you can do is have a conversation that enlivens, that enriches, that's transformative. Um, and in that, something becomes clear, but it's not, it's not the edos, it's not the idolatry. Now, 
There's lots of questions that come up from this. One of them, which I'm not going to answer, I'm just going to mark it because we're going to look at it in the next few weeks, is, well, how do you speak of the unspeakable? Is that, is that just an oxymoron? Is that just a, a, a straight-up contradiction? And uh, what I would look at is kind of know is that actually the history of the scientific and academic kind of philosophical uh, uh, tradition has been a, all about this. How do you speak of what you cannot speak? How do you talk about nothing? How do you mark the negative? Uh, in mathematics, the moment that we draw, drew a circle around nothing and we got zero, <laughs> that is the positivizing of a negative, right? Zero is a nothing, and that was a big advance within mathematics, right? You have within biology, of course, uh, you know, evolution, which is antagonism within biological organisms. You've got in quantum mechanics, what you, Niels Bohr and his uh, research into kind of wave particle geology and the, the consequences of that. Um, that was pre-Bohr, but Bohr's the one who starts to get into the, the consequences. I've talked about that elsewhere, but are the unconscious as a type of negation that we can navigate right so there are ways of doing that but all of those conversations you can kind of see starting interestingly in these esoteric mystical conversations right back to pseudo Dionysius right back with Meister Eckhart right back with Anselm okay I'm going to look see if there's any questions and uh, and then after that I will let you get on with your day oh yeah so the first one Kate because you asked me why do some people say that the ontological argument isn't ontological? And that kind of is implicitly in what I've talked about is that basically ontology means the, the study of being, the study of what is. And Anselm's argument is that God is beyond being. God grounds being or is hyper being. And so someone like Jean-Luc Marion, he wrote a great article called Why the Ontological Argument Isn't Ontological. And it's on my Atheism for Lent course. And uh, it's basically saying that it's not an ontological argument because Anselm is saying, no, we cannot conceive this. We can talk about being, we can conceive being, but we're talking about what cannot be conceived. And that is something otherwise than being, right? Um, whereas Descartes, he has an argument that's similar to, uh, to Anselm in the sense of it's an argument that's trying to, that works what's called a priori, prior to our experience of the world. Basically, Descartes tries to argue for the existence of God purely from the mind. And in a nutshell, he says this. You'll know this, right? This part anyway. Uh, Descartes starts to doubt everything, right? So I can doubt that I'm here. I can doubt that I'm awake. I can doubt that I'm um, uh, uh, experiencing reality the way it is. I can doubt all of that. There might be an all-powerful demon who's in control of everything and who's making sure that everything I believe is wrong. And so Descartes is trying to find, like, like you know, this is a, something a lot of philosophers do, is trying to find some, a starting point, something that you can start with that's, that's indutable. And he goes, okay, is there anything this all-powerful demon couldn't fool me about? And he says, well, I suppose he can't fool me into thinking that I'm not thinking. Because if I'm thinking, if I'm thinking that I'm not thinking, I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking about not thinking. So it goes like, okay, so I can't be fooled that I'm thinking when I'm thinking. As I say, because even if I'm thinking I'm not thinking, I'm thinking I'm not thinking, right? So he says, okay, so I think, therefore I am, right? I am in, in the process of thinking, there is an affirmation of my existence. So that's where he starts from. And then he goes to, it's been a while since I've read this, but he goes from there to, um, 
to arguing that we have a concept of God in our mind and he then says that we cannot conceptualize something greater than our than our intellectual ability but he says but God is greater than anything we experience in the world we couldn't have come up with that thought ourselves this is Descartes argument and so someone must have put it there but only God could think God so therefore God must have put the idea of God in our minds and then that allows him to kind of move forward and um, it's a strange argument but um, uh, but that's an ontological argument more so than than Anselm's all right Kate says so the way that God is spoken of in typical Western churches could be seen as an iconic metaphorical expression rather than an actual definition. Yeah, so <clears throat> it depends. But yeah, like whenever you talk about God as a war, I mean, we do it all the time. Like theological language is very metaphorical, similes and analogies. So God is warrior, God is peacemaker. They're two opposites. They don't fit together if you take them literally, but if you take them metaphorically, you can. God who hears everything, God who, who doesn't who's deaf to the cries of people or who's caught off guard by something and then God who is everywhere. You can see that that in a way all of this, even when we, we're, we're talking in very literal ways, is, isn't, I mean, C.S. Lewis kind of got this. One of C.S. Lewis's critiques of John Robinson, who was a bishop who wrote Honest to God, who was kind of an early radical theologian, one of his critiques was not that John Robinson went too far by saying that, you know, everything is kind of metaphor, uh, C.S. Lewis felt like, like we've always known that. That's always been in the theological tradition. Of course it is, everything. And uh, you know, even in science, we use lots of metaphors when we think we're not. Metaphor is part of the very nature of language itself. Um, interestingly, Bonhoeffer was very strong in this as well. Like he, 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 he wanted to push for the idea that um, uh, all language related to God as a type of um, mythological uh, discourse. So yeah, exactly. and the point is we, we sometimes try to deny it. Some people try to deny it for lots of legitimate reasons, for fear, for desire, for control, for, um, for fear of losing friends, for fear of losing a job, lots of things, right? Lots of reasons why we hold on to your political beliefs like this or whatever. Um, but the idea that one of the, one of the purposes of a pastor, in a way, is to is to open up that metaphorical language to let it breathe. Yeah. Um, and Tim says also a theme in Fidelity of Betrayal. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that was that was my second book, I think, Fidelity of Betrayal. And that the very fact is called Fidelity of Betrayal. I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but when you talk about opposites like atheism and theism, or black and white, and things that look different fidelity and betrayal is a dialectic, right? They seem like they're completely separate, but actually betraying what you believe can be an act of fidelity. It can be yeah, this, this kind of process. So yeah, in that book, I was kind of exploring a version of this type of dialectic thinking that we've been looking at. All right. Um, 